Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Fernino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. In 2015, Billy Joel wasn't just selling out shows. He was making headlines across the nation. His songwriting was praised by everyone from George Gershwin to Snoop Dogg. He made an unexpected festival appearance, and journalists were diving into his history, introducing him to a brand new generation of fans. It's almost hard to believe that just a few years earlier, it looked like Billy was gearing up for retirement. But with his Madison Square Garden residency, Launched in 2014, he was firmly back in the spotlight. Our year in review covers it all. The set lists, reviews, feature articles, and awards. Plus, we've got first-hand memories from one of us who attended a garden show that year. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel in 2015. Twenty fifteen. Who would have seen this coming back then? We're wrapping up ten years of the Madison Square Garden residency next year, but back then this was uh, this was a f- still a fledgling venture. The, nobody knew how long it was going to last. Nobody had really heard too much from Billy in the years prior. All of a sudden, he's back in the spotlight, and he really doesn't leave. And let me just add the caveat with the fledgling venture: this was no doubt still the hottest ticket in town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. but nobody thought it was going to last a decade. No, <laughs> or, right, I mean, exactly. it, wasn't, it wasn't a foregone <laughs> conclusion, I should say. Yeah, it wasn't fledgling in like the, let's see what happens. You know, he had been selling out right. since the previous year. <laughs> I mean, we've talked a lot about how Billy went dark, you know, in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. Yeah. And, you know, just five years prior, this was unlikely to happen. Right. So, you know, a lot of these later years aren't as interesting as if when we dive into the 70s or the 80s. Um, but this is an interesting one because it, it's it's fun to look back at the upswing. I was at a show this year, so I did see Billy. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But 2015 was the year that I moved from Michigan to Washington. And in some ways, it feels like we haven't been out here very long. But we were going through a Billy Joel timeline like it's the past. And then I start to do the math. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is eight years ago. It yeah, doesn't feel it's like, like I've been here that long. Yeah, it's 2015. We feel like we're doing like two years ago or something. And it's like, no, man, that, that's uh, going on almost a decade here. Yeah. Yeah, but a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Plenty of shows, some good media coverage. I'd say something of an unexpected festival appearance yeah absolutely and also an unexpected nuptial later in the year as well so you think we're gonna get right into that huh no we're not we have some mail to open (laughs) you mr mcfeely speedy delivery not really for us because we uh, really (laughs) sold that one huh we're like email us and we'll read (laughs) it these are like months old (laughs) yeah man look we have we have the best of intentions and then there's always the russian roulette of like who gets me writing back to them at 1 a.m and like just like spouting off paragraphs because i'm half that's how you you joined me for the podcast (laughs) yeah (laughs) this is true you know i i have have my ways i caught you at the right moment and we ended up having like a 30 minute chat at one in the morning your time on a on a cold december night yeah and then uh here we are three and a half years later yeah how time flies once again (laughs) We'll just jump right in here. Uh, we got a lot about an, our Innocent Man episode, and the first thing worth mentioning is that we got a resoundingly positive response to our new album format, where we listen along 
live to the album and uh, offer commentary as the track's playing in the background. I think the uh, the only piece of criticism or constructive criticism we got was make the track a little louder. And it's funny you mentioned that, Jack, because I, I happen to have the session files nearby when I got about three comments saying, I love this format. Could it just be a little louder, like you said? And I was able to bump the album audio by about 5 dB, and that was enough to push it up a little bit to make it sit a little better mm-hmm. in the mix. And so if you all listened to the episode within the first like eight hours it was out, uh, revisit it again if you'd like, and you'll you'll hear the album a little bit better. Do we lose our stats on that, or do we keep them, like the number of listens? Just out of curiosity. So here's a little inside baseball. The way Podbean works is if your file you replace it with is named exactly the same as how they name your file, you don't lose your stats. Oh, interesting. Okay. Good to know. So I, I was very careful and <laughs> kept the naming just right. <laughs> and so we were able to maintain our first half a day stats uh, and just build on them uh, when I replaced the uh, podcast audio. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's dig into the old mailbag and see what people had to say about this album. First one is a, a series or volley, however you want to put it, of uh, a couple of emails from Andy Richardson. Uh, so I'll kind of pull a little out in and out of these. Um, I like these because, uh, you know, Andy takes us up on the, uh, on our, uh, request to like, you know, really set the scene. When did you, what do you remember about getting the album? Things like that. And he's got some great time capsule stuff in here. So let's see what we're going to pull out. He writes in part, an innocent man is my Billy Joel album. I was born in 1975 and an innocent man came out when I was just starting to discover music. It was one of my first two cassettes I received along with the Ghostbusters soundtrack. I had a clock radio with a cassette player and that was a big damn deal for me. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> I feel you on that. That was my big Christmas present that year. That's awesome. I played that Innocent Man cassette so many times that I eventually wore through it and had to buy another one sometime in middle school. I never broke it. I just wore it out. That's hard to do with a cassette, let me tell you. And he has some kind words for us, but later on he mentions, uh, An Innocent Man was my introduction to Billy Joel. This is one of the first few cassettes I owned along with Olivia Newton-John's greatest hits and Huey Lewis Sports. I love the list of the long format. Thank you for clipping in the alternate version of Tell Her About It. That's the kind of production stuff that really makes this podcast go. Tip of the hat to Michael. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. I always disliked Easy Money the most as a kid, even going so far to say it's the one that I didn't like on my favorite album. As a 48-year-old, though, I like it much better. I really appreciate your analysis of An Innocent Man. I've always found the lyrics a little bit confusing, but as soon as you said the bit about the song crescendoing into a fight and that the break and then Billy changing his tone, it all made sense. I think that analysis might have jumped that song 25 notches on my favorite Billy Joe song list. All right, tip the hat to me on that one. This is why yeah. we're a good team. Yeah. See, it works. It works. The Longest Time was the song that made me want to get the album. It's hard to underestimate how important 50s nostalgia was in the early 80s. You had Happy Days as the biggest show in the world and Sha Na Na and all sorts of other stuff peaking with Stand By Me in 1986. The Windy Years pushed that nostalgia up a decade into the 60s, along with China Beach in the later part of the 80s. I loved your analogy to the Windy Years as you talk about this night. I wasn't even old enough to go to dances yet when I was listening to this song, but this is exactly what junior high dances felt like. <laughs> I like this part. <laughs> I appreciate your take on Frankie Valley as well, because I hate him too. Damn right. My children love Jersey Boys, as does my mother, so I've spent far too much time with that in my life. At this point, Uptown Girl has moved into the if I never hear it again, I'll be fine category. I like Careless Talk better than you guys, but that song is very nostalgic for 12-year-old me because somebody told the girl that I liked that I liked her, but I had to pretend that I didn't because I was 12. That is such a like perfect distillation. Like Everything about that sentence is, is like... <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. spot on. <laughs> this is a great email so far, man. Yeah, wow. right, yeah. And this song really spoke to me. I'm a big fan of Christy Lee. Again, 12-year-old me felt very smart figuring out that it was Christy Brinkley. Plus, I love a good story in the vein of uh, Big Bad Leroy Brown or something like that. And Billy doesn't have a ton of songs like that. Plus, I love the saxophone. And this is actually a song about a saxophone. Leave a Tender Moment Alone and Keeping the Faith are two of my top five all-time favorite songs and and of Billy Joel. So I appreciate your appreciation. As always, I love the podcast, but this one was extra special for me. Thank you for giving me an extra insight into what is almost certainly the most important album of my childhood. He knocked us back one more time. This is kind of cool. While the album is clearly a Billy Joel album, his influences are pretty obvious. I don't listen to a ton of modern music, but one artist that I noticed that kind of does this is Bruno Mars. All of his songs sound like him, but when my kids listen to it, I try to explain to them how he is influenced by bands from the 80s and 90s. Well, thanks for making us all feel old. I imagine that's how a lot of parents felt listening to An Innocent Man with their kids. I'm sure my parents thought it was hilarious that 10-year-old me thought their music was terrible and only modern music was any good, but my favorite album was clearly and directly influenced by the music of their childhood that I thought was old-fashioned and stupid. Certainly uh, some mature perspective from you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, I, I didn't really think of um, Bruno Mars like that. It's true. You, you know a Bruno Mars song when you hear it, and kids don't realize that it's uh, a lot of 80s pastiche. And the Silk Sonic stuff even is the 70s, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I put that, yeah, I put Silk Sonic in a different category because that was just like such a such a passion project, you know? Yeah, that, like, yeah, yeah. You know, Bruno Mars is like hit making. Silk Sonic was oh, yeah. like, let's just see how many ridiculous chord extensions we can we can we can cram into smoking out the window you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) but uh yeah andy thanks for all the emails um thanks for putting this in a great historical perspective i think um hearing from someone that was 12 when the album came out and wore that uh cassette out is exactly the kind of perspective that we love to get here and we love to to share because that's just uh it's another expansion of the uh of 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 our episode you know what we're bringing to the table here This next one is from Andrew Morley in Worcester, England. And he writes, uh, hey, guys, just listen to the Innocent Man retrospective and really like the new format. Great episode. And like many people, this album was my initial introduction to Billy. I was 13 when the record came out and had a massive impact in the UK. I remember the BBC showing some concerts on television and doing what they used to call a simulcast with the radio so you could watch the concert and get the stereo sound (laughs) to go with it. Ah, the wonders of modern technology. (laughs) As the early 80s were the heyday of cassettes, I first got my hands on the album by taping a friend's copy. I loved every track, but remember feeling a little uncomfortable about being into a record that my mom and her friends liked so much. That couldn't be cool. I drifted away from his music for a few years until I went to sixth form. That's like, that's a a distinction. Yeah, yeah, sixth form, yeah. Did you ever hear like Mr. Burns mean my fourth form chums would think it would be quite corking? If you would oh, hand over your money yeah, to the yeah. local language okay. you're concerned, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now okay. we have to leave that bit in. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I drifted away from his music for a few years until I went to sixth form college where a friend of mine had a tape player and we listened to his tapes during lunch break while playing cards. He only had Billy Joel, Elvis Costello, and Tom Waits. And from that point, I became a massive fan of all three. We used to play songs in the attic and even had a copy of California Flash, which is what a German record label called their reissue of the Attila recordings. I got a job that summer and bought Billy's entire back catalog. Billy was definitely my inspiration for learning to play piano and Hammond organ, and I still like nothing more than putting easy money on the turntable 
cranking the distortion on my Hammond and playing along. Kidding myself, I could have been in the band if I were a few years older. Keep up the great shows, guys. I've been listening since the start. All the best, Andrew Morley. And, oh, and uh, I was chatting with Andrew on email. We all have to um, send Andrew encouragement because he's recorded all the, the tracks to Stormfront, the song, and uh, and he's he's feeling uh, a bit intimidated by attempting the vocals. So everybody just has to tell him to go at it, and we want to we want to hear the finished product here. Yeah, Drew, I'd love to hear it, man. Give it a go. Yeah, yeah. It'll be fun. That's got to be a fun one to, to kind of belt. I mean, you're in your basement, man. Have a ball. <laughs> <laughs> Reading Andrew's email here, and uh, Andy's email prior, we're talking about the Innocent Man album. And this album in particular is firmly planted in the era of the cassette. Yeah. Yeah. And how much the, the cassette format becomes a part of the experience, like the record did in the 70s and again today. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've got cassettes sitting all around me. I've got a Billy Joel bootleg, a Hassel's cassette. Mm-hmm. You know, I got stuff all around me and growing up with me as well too. You know, I loved my records, but when cars finally had cassette players and, and you know, you had my first Sony Walkman and all these things, it's like the, the experience of having an album via cassette and, you know, flipping it over to side two, or if you're real fancy and had a cassette player that auto did it. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> And, I mean, um, little twirly fingers. You guys couldn't yeah, see that. <laughs> yeah. I saw exactly what you were doing. The devastation when you'd hear... <laughs> and it would stop, and you'd open the the uh, tray to put the cassette in to learn the horror that your cassette deck ate the cassette. Oh, and it, it unspooled. And then, and then sometimes it didn't break, but like it accordioned. And you're like, yes. this is never going to sound right again. Like... It's just always going to be like, it's just always going to ripple. Uh, that was uh, worse. And you oh so carefully try to untangle it from the mechanism in the player to get it out yeah. without completely destroying it. Oh, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, surgical extraction. Then you sat there with a pencil <laughs> trying to re-spool it. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, yeah. And, that uh, brings back memories. <laughs> it does. But, you know, the, again, that's all part of the experience of the cassette. And I love that both Andy and Andrew, Andy Richardson over in the U.S. here, and then you had Andrew in, in Europe. Here and there, it was such a big culture force. And by 83, was quickly becoming the prime music delivery format. I've got so many memories surrounding the cassette. It's, uh, it's cool to hear their take on it as well. There was another letter that I didn't put on this list, because I think we'll read it next time, as it just do with the Innocent Man tour more than the album. But it was someone else from England or from the UK that uh, mentions the Wembley concert. And I think that was pretty big there. I think that like kind of cracked open the audience in the UK, at least the younger audience. I think that's that was a big tipping point for him for the 80s abroad or overseas, across the yeah, pond, as they yeah. say. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, that album did insanely well. I mean, he had some success over there prior, certainly. Yeah, the Innocent Man era really broke him open over there for sure. Right. Oh, and then real quick, Sixth Form College refers to like years 12 and 13 in uh in school so it's like kind of high school like the end of co- high school i guess i guess if kindergarten is you know one and then 12th grade is 13 so that that's what that meant sixth form college yeah we learned something <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know i, I should probably that the that, more you yeah. know uh, yeah i was just thinking that like all right next we have a message from our old friend bob neville 
He writes, From Piano Man to An Innocent Man was the first big arena concert that I attended, a gift from my mom for a recent birthday. My mom waited at what was then called Ticketron, which was inside a Sears in a suburban Cleveland area mall. At the arena called the Coliseum, now demolished, I purchased one of those from Piano Man to an Innocent Man shirts. My size was a medium, which I proudly wore to school the next day. Many others had the same shirt on. Printing of the photo collage started lower on mine. I was end- I was endlessly ragged on for having a defective shirt. Man, kids were jerkwads back in the eighties and nineties. Like, just right. I was just thinking about this the other day. You remember you couldn't like wear your backpack with both straps on without getting your hump busted. Oh yeah, you had to have it on like, one shoulder. That's it. Oh yeah, God forbid we didn't have back problems later. You. <laughs> yeah whatever anyway it turns out that the photo collage started lower on the medium shirts but higher on the large shirts in short i couldn't stand that school bob i feel you i identify with this comment so much yeah i'm glad you're in atlanta doing it up at cnn i, I hope those guys are all uh breaking news those kids suck <laughs> I hope they're all no, no, no. <laughs> I got so many things I could say. All right. When it comes to the concert, I was mesmerized the moment those lights came down and Prelude Angry Young Man started. Even though I was already a fan for about seven years at that point, I became an even bigger fan. For a bit of trivia, The Longest Time was just released as the fourth single from An Innocent Man that same month in 1984. Oh, this is Aaron. He's got a YouTube here. I'm not sure if you all saw or heard that I used to include some of Billy's music when I was making films back then. All right. Let's see here. Yeah. Oh, so these are like some uh, some student films. Maybe we'll pipe this in. I don't know. I don't have the audio is gonna. Oh, okay. So we got traveling prayer. Oh, okay. Cool. So this is like some. Uh, this is first of all, this is film. This is why it looks like eight millimeter or something. Yeah. <laughs> so we got traveling prayer, and we got some stop motion of a person like just sitting down, and he's like he's scooting, scooting down the street and like around <laughs> corners and stuff. <laughs> And he just so got good. thrown over a fence. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Dude, this could be a like a freaking Beck video in the 90s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, this is great. Just like the whole bunch of nice, fun little in-camera edits and all. Yeah. This is like a buzz <laughs> clip from like 1994. I slid under the car. Man, it's a classic car. Oh, that was pretty cool. I don't know, man. We, we, we should put that up somewhere. I dig it, yes. Yeah, so Travel of Prayer was a good one. A little hoot nanny to put with it. <laughs> and so our last email is from our friend David G from D.C., And he writes in, great episode. I was 12 when the album came out, but really didn't fall for Billy's music until 84 or 85. Of course, this was such a monster album that the singles were still being released from it at the time. So this was my first current Billy Joel album as a fan. That said, yes, the vibe was from older fans that this was the first not cool album of his. I think it has to do with the tone of the songs. He's so unabashedly happy and not bitter. And everything from him up to that point was so much more sarcastic, edgy, cynical, at least lyrically. There's no big shot, Laura, Captain Jack, or Angry Young Man on this album. It's his happy album. In the same way that Springsteen's Human Touch is his happy album. The difference being Bruce was struggling as a songwriter and Billy was firing on all cylinders. He's never sung better. The band is just so free and effortless. The production so timeless. Say what you want about the nostalgia, but it certainly doesn't sound 80s. So yeah, I love the album. I don't care if it's not cool. Funny, it was nostalgia at the time for boomers, but now it's Gen X nostalgia. And sadly, it was the last time Billy wrote a true concept album. Everything after is such a mix of styles. Lastly, I was hoping you'd talk about the vocal of An Innocent Man, the song. Amazing. But also amazing that by the time he performed it in 1984 on tour, just a few months later, 
he already had someone else sing the high note for him. Was this literally the last gasp of his upper range and he could hit the high notes after that? Did he struggle to hit it and then never attempt it again? Was he afraid that it would blow out his voice in concert? Was there studio trickery to get that note on record in the first place? Why would he write it in the key that high knowing he wouldn't be able to perform it live? So weird to me. Last thing that's bizarre to me about the album, Tell Her About It is a number one smash. He plays it a couple times in concert and then almost never again. Not sure why he hates that song, but I'm fairly certain he's only played it a handful of times in concert. Thanks for another great episode. DG from DC. Uh, I want to touch on the innocent man vocal a bit. When Billy writes, I think he just, he's not thinking how it's going to be performed live. He's thinking more of a studio project and more of a song project. So he's not necessarily thinking how he's going to pull this off live. I think that's like, okay, now we have this record. Let's see how we can represent it. And so he was writing what made sense. And if you listen to a lot of those doo-wop songs from the 60s and 50s, it's a lot of songs that are in a, in a high register. And so he was going for that style and that vibe. Um, I can say most certainly uh, there's no studio trickery on the recording. It's Billy in full voice just hitting those notes. He could do it a few times without, you know, yeah. it, it wearing on him too bad. He knew he needed to be smart about the live show. You know, he was bringing on some additional singers, as it were, for all the great backing vocals. And it was just the smart move because he could hit it, but it would tear his throat up. So he was smart to hand it off to Peter Hewlett and things like that and Crystal in later years. So he didn't have to completely go for it. The last few years, he's dropped it down a few keys to where now it's in a, in a range that he's a little more comfortable going for it. And so now he's again singing the chorus. But for that time, it absolutely made sense to hand it off to somebody else. Yeah, they didn't have pseudo trickery back then, certainly like they do now. There were little things you could do. You had a little touch of reverb on the, on the, on the end of it, top to sweeten it. I'm curious if, if this was multiple takes, because we know um, a lot of this stuff was, was one take, at least on prior albums. And I wonder if this was one where he wasn't at the piano and did it in a vocal booth. It's such a sparse arrangement too. So I'm very curious how this song was tracked. Yeah. Cause he could have just even put the piano on later. He could have been singing over just uh, what was there. I mean, once, cause once you get into the orchestration, like, you know, who knows? We'll have to figure that out soon. We should ask some uh, Brad if he remembers. Yeah. That's always my Christmas present is talking to him toward the end of the year. So it's about <laughs> that time. <laughs> it is. I love the observation here. Uh, comparing, Innocent Man to Human Touch, but then noting that yeah. uh, the difference being Bruce was struggling as a songwriter. Um, I don't know. That's just such a, a great series of observations that deserve to be called out again. Like, I always figured like it would be a turn off to like the older fans just because it was like, you know, such a, a teeny bopper kind of sounding album, a really pop yeah. album. But yeah, he's, he doesn't have any better songs on it. It's true. When how many yeah. misanthropes were like, oh man, I thought I had a friend. <laughs> and this right. guy's all yeah. doing well for himself. That's a good point about the production. It does not sound 80s. Yeah, it just sounds like it's just like a touch of 50s without being, you know, too obviously yeah. 50s. But there's like, there's no like weird electronic drums. On. I guess like the Stray Cats kind of pulled that off too. But they, they tried to make a, a little more mm -hmm. uh, purposely retro sounding. But yeah, it, they really, it really struck a good balance. And I, I think that this album would not have the staying power that it does if it sounded more like the bridge. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. This recording is a little more timeless. Certainly the bridge is certainly cemented in 1986 with the way it sounds for better or for worse. Yeah. I mean, it sounds how it sounds, but yeah. you're not going to listen to this recording and go, Oh, that's the eighties for sure. Right. 
or wow, they really tried to like get an old 50 sound. Like he didn't right. go down to Sun Studios and try to record there or something crazy like that. No, it's just a very clean recording. It's very yeah. well recorded. Yeah, it's very well recorded. And, you know, coming from years of, of recording live in the studio too, I bet you that made a difference. I bet you that gave it a little bit more air of authenticity because, uh, you know, a lot of stuff back in the day was tracked live or as live as they could do it. Easy Money, for example, those horns were playing live with the band. Billy was in a vocal booth, so he was isolated so they could get a good take. That affects the sound and the recording and the feel just with mm -hmm. the air moving around in the room. All these yeah. different elements go into the way a record sounds and uh, the resonance and everything. So I say we close the mailbag for now. All right. Let's fast forward 32 years back to 2015. First thing that happens, January 2nd, Billy Joel is honored in a star-studded Gershwin Prize tribute contest that occurred back in November of 2014 and aired January 2nd. He was the 2014 recipient of the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. Uh, the nation's lawmakers also recognized Joel's creative genius. Joel said his mother, who passed away this year, quote, would have gotten such a kick out of this. Recalled how uh, George and Ira Gershwin, the legendary American songwriting team, inspired him when he performed in the Soviet Union in 1987. To get back to our, uh, our conversation with John Jackson, where he posited that uh, New York State of Mind was the final entry in the Great American Songbook. This supports that claim. As we move later along in the week, Garden Residency continues. We're January 9th at Madison Square Garden. And that also coincides with the interesting interview uh, by the examiner with Steve Cohen. And uh, I can't find the original article anymore, but there's a cool little snippet on Billy's website that it might be fun to touch on. It's a Q&A with Dr. Lights. Cohen, I'm 40 years of touring with Billy Joel. So here's just, a, just one Q&A. says, tell me a little bit about how the year at Madison Square Garden went with the residency and what new things you might have planned for 2015. And Steve says, it's incredible. The greatest thing about doing the residency at Madison Square Garden is the fact that each show can be unique to that event. We're not on tape. We don't use recorded backing tracks. We don't use time-coded video. There is a structure, a framework, but it's a live, living, breathing thing. There's been a multitude of songs that got played throughout the year's run, but the set list is different every night, and each show is unique. I've been doing this for a long time, and I remember going to shows when I was a kid. And I remember having a singular experience when I saw a band live. So what I think we're doing at Madison Square Garden is we're providing the fans, the ones who come one time and the ones that come every night with a moment in time that can never be repeated. And that's what makes it really special outside of the fact that it's the best venue on the planet to play. And it's Billy's home. And uh, I'm yep. going to email this to you. I use the, uh, the Wayback Machine and I, I got the article. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I'll send that. We should, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll, maybe we'll put it in the show notes so people can read it because it's uh, not readily available online. Pretty long, which is kind of cool. I mean, Steve Cohen deserves an episode and a half all to himself. So oh, agreed. We'll, we'll get to that when we get to it. I mean, I would seriously love to do an episode on the production design for every tour. We got to trap them in a room for three days. Maybe there'll be a blizzard this year and uh, I'll be like, well, while we're here, you know, well. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of machinations I'm going through here, but you know, we'll figure it out. We'll jump around a little here. We have some shows uh, in other parts of the country. January 22nd, American Airlines Center in Dallas, Texas. January 31st, uh, American Airlines Arena in Miami, Florida. And February 28th, Phillips Arena in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, in between that, we have uh, Madison Square Garden on February 18th. And Mike Del Judas sang the national anthem at a New York Rangers game on January 23rd. Yeah, so if American Airlines uh, 
ticket prices went up that year. Now you know why. (laughs) 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 And so now as we get into March, March 9th, we're back at Madison Square Garden. March 20th, we're up in Syracuse, New York at the Carrier Dome. And as we move into April, we are back at the Garden. And I was actually there. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, April 17th, Billy participates in a campaign for Take a Stand for Elephants. It's called 96 Elephants Campaign. Uh, and the, the basically the release says uh, Africa's elephants have just gotten a powerful new supporter. Music legend Billy Joel. Joel's voice is heard in a series of new ads supporting the Wildlife Conservation Society's 96 Elephants Campaign. So named for the number of elephants slaughtered each day by poachers. With the backdrop of computer animated elephants coming to life from shards of ivory, Joel's voiceover warns, we can't turn back time, but we can reverse this trend. Don't be the generation that allowed elephants to go extinct. And so that was very nice of him to lend his uh, voice to that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you don't hear about that one a lot, so. No. I, yeah, I'm not sure where all it went, but, um, and, you know, you don't see Billy on a lot of, you know, things like that. So it's certainly something he must have felt strongly about to do yeah. it. I'm Billy Joel. Did you know the United States and China have each crushed more than six tons of ivory? These fragments are all that remain of countless elephants. Every day, 96 elephants are killed in Africa for their ivory tusks. We can't turn back time, but we can reverse this trend. Don't be the generation that allowed elephants to go extinct. Take a stand. Go to 96elephants.org. And then um, as we continue on through April, there is an interesting article from Deadspin, <laughs> Billy Joel and Rap, An Affair for the Ages. <laughs> well, it's, um, do you want to back up and hit this review and set list before? Because that sounds like it's what's, I think we're going to have some fun with that one. Yeah, yeah. We'll hit that after. So let's yeah. go back to Syracuse. All right. So let's hit Syracuse here. Um, I don't know what I'm going to think of this review. I mean, I'm not going to care what the review is, but I, let's, let's see if I like this journalist. Because we start off with a daring, daring headline. <clears throat> Billy Joel lied to us all, he's got to say. Uh, Chris Baker. Billy Joel lied to us all Friday night at the Carrier Dome. I won't be here for another year if I don't stay on the charts, he sang. A lyric from 1974 as the entertainer. Bull. It's been two decades since Joel topped any charts, which he did quite often for a spell. But there he was Friday at the Dome, his seventh such appearance in 25 years, and more than 37,000 fans turned out to be entertained. That's some solid writing. I'll give it to yeah, him, man. That's, that's, that's economical, good. and he... He does a good job of like getting all the information, getting all the expository stuff out there in a fun way, like moves the narrative along. I like it. Okay. Yep. So entertain us he did with a career spanning, if predictable, set that touched on Piano Man, Moving Out, River of Dreams, and more. The real magic, however, came between the music. Joel stuck fairly close to a meticulously crafted selection of songs, a careful two-hour crescendo that's been a staple of recent shows at Madison Square Garden and beyond. He let the crowd vote on a few choices like Ballad of Billy the Kid or Vienna, the latter one. He snuck in the closing portion of Eric Clapton's Layla and a riff from Let It Snow. Ah, uh, not to be pedantic, it's Derek and the Dominoes, but fine, it's close enough. Yep. I like that he uh, notes that it's predictable, but also a crescendo, a careful two-hour crescendo, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Joel is a brilliant songwriter, one of the best of a generation, but his most remarkable skill proved his ability to make a cavernous concrete shell twice the size of the garden feel intimate. Joel was playing a room notorious for its awful acoustics. There's a bit of echo in here, he joked. If you come back tomorrow, you can probably hear the show. Nice. That's a good line. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Friday, though, he performed 
with a calm and ease that only comes from five decades as an entertainer. He never shouted nor riled the crowd with cheap call-outs, how you feel in Syracuse. Rather, he breezed along in front of 30-something thousand, much the way a lounge singer might work a hotel lobby. When it was time for loud rock, he let someone else shoulder the load, like Chainsaw, the roadie who sang ACDC's Highway to Hell. Joel stood smiling gently in the background, playing rhythm guitar. He spoke softly and matter-of-factly. He doled out dry wit and cursed the weather. He wished, quote, Terry a happy birthday. He even half-heartedly tried to collapse the dome. This is an aerodome, he mused before asking everyone to inhale at once. He glanced at the ceiling nervously. It's very well built. (laughs) (laughs) He was every bit the elder statesman of a songwriter you expect him to be, hammering away on his grand piano, dishing out New York-flavored melodies, and joking about ex-wives in years gone by. So yes, Billy Joel lied to us, because Piano Man won't be creeping to the top of any charts next year, but the entertainer will still be around year after year after year. And uh, let's see how this set list compares to yours, Michael. Yeah. Uh, A Matter of Trust, Pressure, Miami 2017, The Entertainer, Summer Highland Falls, uh, Your Song Intro, Elton John, The Down Easter Alexa by Crowd Choice, Zanzibar, New York State of Mind, Vienna by Crowd Choice, Moving Out, and then uh, The Layla Coda, Ode to Joy, Intro into My Life, Allentown, She's Always a Woman to Me, Highway to Hell with Chainsaw, Uptown Girl, River of Dreams, Tush, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant and Piano Man. And then the encore is still rock and roll to me. Big Shot, You May Be Right, and Only the Good Die Young. Good article. Well written. I was kind of snickering earlier in it. Earlier tonight, we reviewed the 1976 Bottom Line show where Billy goes one on one of his infamous rants about rock and roll jive. The writer here talked about how he didn't you know, do things like that. He never shouted nor riled the crowd with cheap call-outs. How you feel in Syracuse? And it just, as soon as the writer said this, it made me think of the whole rock and roll jive thing. As I mentioned, I was actually at the April 3rd Madison Square Garden show. So this was an insane time of life for us. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Here's a little story time. Fast forward to February. We learned that the street we were living on, because we were originally planning on moving out and moving west. That was the plan all along, but the plan was to do this at the end of June when our lease was up, uh, either the end of May or the end of June. So that was originally the plan, and we get a notice from the city we lived in that starting in April of that year, they were going to be replacing the sidewalks and like all the piping and everything on our street, and for two to three months, our entire street was going to be torn out with no vehicle access. Hmm. And this happened to be right in the middle of when we were going to be planning on moving. And I'm like, well, we can't move if we can't even get to our house with a car, let alone a moving truck. After a moment of freak out and uh, trying to figure out what we were going to do. Fortunately, uh, my sister-in-law lived about a half hour from where we did. And um, she allowed Jen and I to stay with them for a couple months before our original plan move. But what that did is that escalated our move out time. So instead of having like three months to plan the packing and moving out, we had like five weeks or something like that. From that day, we just like scrambled, went into crazy packing mode. We didn't even know where exactly we were going to ultimately live. We just knew it was going to be the West Coast. So we packed everything we owned, put it in uh, like a trailer with this company that will store your stuff and move it wherever you want, whenever you want. In the middle of all that, I'm working. I worked the auto show circuit for Ford. And every April, 
I went to New York for the New York Auto Show. That was all in the mix of this. So literally what had happened is we packed up the truck, got everything out of the house, uh, had the house cleaned and everything done. Finally, it was done. We watched the moving truck pull away. And the next morning we were in New York and I was literally by 8 a.m. the next day was on the floor at the Javits Center for the auto show. This is a usual uh, Michael Jones is what you're telling right, me. Right, right. So like, yeah, <laughs> you guys know in my... Uh, by California to New York for the <laughs> Sag Harbor Yankee Stadium thing. That's about par for the course, yeah. right? But I had known for months that we were going to be in New York, you know, for the first week of April. So we had bought two tickets to see Billy at Madison Square Garden. And this was also David Letterman's last month hosting the Late Show. And by some luck of the draw, I got us tickets to one of his last shows. So like that was absolutely exciting. So we did that the first night in New York. And uh, just two nights later, it was uh, Billy at the Garden. And this was my second time seeing Billy at the Garden. I got to go in 2014 as well. And um, I'm going to pull up this set list. And again, this was April 3rd. We had Miami 2017, My Life. We got The Stranger, which beat out Summer Highland Falls. Uh, Vienna, Zanzibar over Big Man on Mulberry Street. That would have been killer to get big man. Yeah, We got an innocent man over everybody loves you now. I'm happy with that choice. We got a bit of you lost that love and feeling. And then we got the entertainer, New York state of mind. We got uh, the down Easter Alexa. Uh, and then we got, where's the orchestra Allentown running on ice. First time live since 1986 moving out. Mm-hmm. She's always a woman highway to hell with chainsaw. We didn't start the fire. River of Dreams with Tush, uh, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Piano Man, and then you had your standard encore, Uptown Girl, Still Rock and Roll, You May Be Right, and Only the Good Die Young. So we had three incredible rarities that night. Yeah. Considering the typical set list, which you know, he does pepper a few in here and there, to get three in a night was nothing short of amazing. Yeah. We haven't seen something like that in a while. One usually sneaks in, but plenty of other timing had not been working out for you, but this did. <laughs> I guess I guess you saved it up. I haven't seen The Stranger live that often from what I can recall. And I honestly, I had forgotten that we got it that night. Um, I mean, gosh, right. what a treat though. I remember running on ice because that was like, holy crap, has he ever played that before? I knew he played it like once or twice in the 80s. But from what I remember, they didn't even quite make it to the finish line on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and actually there's a video of it from his youtube channel so maybe we'll put in a little clip of it here just to hear a little bit of what it sounded like for the first time in 30 yeah. years running on ice the stranger and then getting where's the orchestra gosh those three were just amazing to get to see those live yeah that's a great show 
when we go to New York, we do it pretty heavy. Jen comes with me because she she would usually, when I would travel for auto shows, she would usually come to one a year. And New York's always the one with the most things to do when I'm working, especially. Mm-hmm. So like over the years, you know, of the four or five years or whatever I went, did all the touristy stuff. But we always would, if Billy was in town, we saw Billy. I think one year we saw Big Shot. Uh, one year, uh, Lord's 52nd Street, we're doing a private party. I got to work and see them. So I got to see Bon Jovi one year, got to see Seinfeld do stand-up. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously we got to see Letterman. You know, I'm working all day, either in my hotel editing or in the at the Javits Center getting content. But like New York's one of those cities where you don't even think about the fact that it's two or three in the morning when you're like in town. Yeah. You're like, oh, it's it's two thirty. Yeah, let's let's stop at Ray's and grab a slice, and then we'll go see what else is open. Yeah, time moves a little differently after Michael hits a grand slam on the <laughs> Isle of Manhattan. We get uh, a couple weeks later, we get an interesting article in Deadspin. Deadspin is one of the more curious sites, I think, because it's purportedly about sports, but just does all sorts of different stuff. Anyway, this one is Billy Joel and rap, an affair for the ages. And now, <laughs> remembering this is 2015. It's got this illustration of, uh, you know, 2015 era Billy Joel with the goatee. And he's got like a pink cell phone and this giant pink fuzzy hat and like, you know, big blingy rings on his fingers. And it looks like he's wearing like a jogging, like a jogging suit, track suit. This should be the photo for our like podcast artwork for this episode. People yeah. Be oh, like, what in the world? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. We'll get some listeners. Uh, sorry yeah. you had to get to uh, this far to, to, to get the reference, but you made it. How there you it doing, is. buddy? <laughs> All right, yeah, here we go. Okay, so scanning this first, it looks like it's um, a list of samples, the songs that sampled Billy, but let's see what we get. Here's an inclusive list of things rappers like to rap about. Weed, money, luxury, consumer goods, spending money on weed and luxury consumer goods, places they visited that just so happened to rhyme with whatever they rapped about in the previous line, their exceptional prowess between the sheets, and Billy Joel. Yep, having been fortunate enough to interview many fine rappers over the years... I've learned that if you ask most rappers what they were listening to while recording their latest opus, they'll plump for the piano man. The news recruits become smitten with Billy Joel's Ovar is Action Bronson, the heavy bearded gourmand rapper whose new album's perky opening number, Brand New Car, samples joyfully from Joel's Zanzibar. Quote, Billy Joel puts so much emotion and real life into his music that he's very relatable. I know a lot of songs by heart. Piano Man is a great part classic, but I like moving out and maybe she's always a woman to show my sensitive side. With Bronson's Pixel in order then, here's a salute to the other luminaries of the hip-hop world who've jacked into Billy Joel's grooves. The Stiletto Kids, Billy Joel's old to Bunyan causing footwear, is sparked by a chirpy piano riff that ended up betting one of the best rap songs ever when Marley Maul looped it up and let golden era gangsta chap Cool G rap spit a guide to finding metaphorical pots of gold all over it in Roads to Riches. Uh, that track also includes the lisped G-Rap admitting that he once put in work sweeping floors at a key food supermarket in Queens, although he left out the bit about also selling crack out of the store's aisles. Piano Loop has also snuck into De La Soul's plug tuning. LP used it in Drones Over Brooklyn. Q-Tip and Ali inserted the riff into the often backwards rhyming Fushnikins, true uh, Fushnik, uh, Midwestern emo whiner's atmosphere, Knots in Edition, to their lesser spotted rap covers canon in the late 2000s with their own road to riches. And there's some hullabaloo about G-Rap Alkalite Nas wanting to use the same sample on his track Disciple. But apparently Mr. Joel was not feeling the vibe. That's interesting. We don't have any uh, other information on that. Next we have uh, Moving Out, sampled by Cameron. Purpose into Cameron and Jules mixtape moment you ought to know. White Trash Rap Ambassador Yellow Wolf also mined for Moving Out on Everything I Love the Most. 
the Uptown Rap Dudes, technically the former Dipset member J.R. Ryder indulged in Billy Joel's Uptown Girl first on his Politics and Bullshit project, but Drake's Uptown is the one that snags the spoils here. Uh, Boy Wonder, man, I just sound so lame saying these names. I'm pretty horrible <laughs> at it. This is B-O-I-1-D-A, uh, and it's kind of brilliant because I, I couldn't figure out what it was going to be until I said it. Boy Wonder is on the boards and does Drizzy Auto Tunes. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. That bit in the original where Billy goes, oh, whoa, 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 is filtered into the background. Guest spitters Bun B and Wheezy are presumably washing down the young money Bentley in the background. This guy writes like he's a narc. The opening yeah. lines to New York State of Mind have unsurprisingly resonated with the Big Apple rap set. Bronx Mayor Fat Joe ran with the concept on Terror Squad's 2004 hookup with Cameron, New York State of Mind. Uh, nearly a decade later, French Montana upped the concept State of Mind by doing his mushed mouth mumble singing thing. Finally, uh, a golden era contribution from Cole Flying Grand. Grand Sinister Ice uses a blatant grab from Curtis Mayfield, then the memorable chorus to The Longest Time. Strange has got a bunch. Okay, so Exhibit looped it. For, for no reason in the foundation joey badass pro era crew repeated the trick on pro cakes too after the sad passing of great rap mentalist old dirty bastard dame dash only found some of dirt dogs studio outtakes and layered them over the piano loop for wasting time no more uh the champion use of the stranger goes to a then youthful snoop doggy dog uh, the song is the shiznit but you have to sit through a w balls radio skit Hosted by DJ Salty Nuts to get to the good stuff, but once you do, you'll find yourself seduced by a Dr. Dre mandated replaying of Billy Joel's original main guitar riff that flips into a menacing flute line. Honesty, sampled by Kaza Carter. We mentioned before that Beyonce did a uh, cover of it that's mentioned here. Afrocentric brand Nubian, uh, interpolated lyrics of Just the Way You Are. Pete Rock and CL Smooth, the same song. And it, it yeah. goes on. Uh, there's a lot. And then as we get into May, Billy's got a handful of shows here. We got May 1st in Kansas City at the Spirit Center. May 16th, he's in Minneapolis, Minnesota at Target Center. And as we get further into May, May 21st, Billy receives an honorary degree from Stony Brook University. May 28th, we are back at Madison Square Garden. One thing worth noting, you know, when Billy started kind of getting back into it, he was a little more aggressive. You know, now we're, you know, he's at the comfortable spot where it's about two shows a month. But, you know, here we are looking in May. You know, we've got four shows in May. For quite a bit, he would do like two to three shows elsewhere in a month and then a garden show. So he was playing quite a bit more. In June, uh, there's some a couple articles where they were championing in, in New York to have a Billy Joel Boulevard. It passed the New York Senate, uh, but they, they were facing some resistance because they felt like he didn't deserve the honor because he was still alive. So apparently you can't get your own road until you're dead. That's rough. It did pass the Senate, but I think it died after that. So it didn't. So as we continue through June, June 6th, we're in Virginia Beach, Virginia, at the Farm Bureau Live venue. June 14th, Manchester, Tennessee in Bonnaroo. So we've this is a big show here. I remember when that happened. I was like, really? He's at Bonnaroo? Like of all places? True to form, the article is Billy Joel in Entertainment Weekly is Billy Joel closes out Bonnaroo 2015 with a heavy with a hit heavy set of nostalgia. Dave Foreigner Bonner Bonnaroo had a bit of a sleepy start, but by the time the piano man took the stage Sunday night, the mood was popping. Talk about some of the songs he played, which is uh the usual hits, but everybody loves you now was in there. Uh per appropriately the crowd welcomed them all with massive reactions. It was a surprise to this this crew that uh the chainsaw came out and did ACDC. You know, everything else is just a pretty straight retelling. This show was professionally filmed, and so there's really great audio and footage out there. 
And I think that's something that might be on our list down the road for a watch party. So as we continue through June, here's another instance of Billy making accommodations for the Pope in New York. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we talked about last year, the Yankee Stadium stuff where they lost a setup uh, pre-production day because the Pope had the uh, appearance and the mass, whatever, at Yankee Stadium. This time, Billy was originally scheduled to play the Garden on September 25th, but in June on the 16th, they announced that it was going to be moved the following day because they announced that Pope Francis was going to be uh, making an appearance at the Garden. They announced that he was moving his show. And just the day after, on June 17th, Billy is honored by the National Music Publishers Association and the 2015 annual meeting in New York. National Music Publishers Association honored Billy Joel on June 17th for his contribution to songwriting and advocacy for those in his profession. After receiving the award, Billy took the podium and said, songwriting really is the toughest part of the job. Leanne Rimes then performed a beautiful adaptation of his songs Lullaby and She's Got Away. Quote here, we're beyond thrilled to pay tribute to Billy Joel for his immeasurable contribution to songwriting and his endless work on behalf of those who hope to follow in his footsteps said NMPA president and CEO David Israelite in a statement. Having Leanne Rhymes perform some of his hits is a tribute to the breadth of influence he has had across the industry. And then June 20th, Billy is back at the garden. It's actually only about 10 days until the next garden show, July 1st. So July 1st, he's uh, at Madison Square Garden. July 4th, he gets married. So according to People Magazine, uh, they tie the knot at the Singers Long Island Estate. The couple surprised guests at their annual July 4th party by exchanging vows in front of their family and close friends. It was presided over by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, a longtime friend. Joel's daughter, singer-songwriter Alexa Ray, and actor Kevin James, 50, were part of the small group of loved ones at the beloved Beautiful Nuptials. Uh, The couple have been together since 2009 and are expecting their first child, a girl, this summer. Billy is thrilled to be a dad again, a source told people in April. Things keep moving. Uh, Boston at Fenway Park, July 16th. July 25th in Baltimore at the M&T Bank Stadium. And then August 4th uh, at uh, Nassau Coliseum is the last show uh, before renovation. Backing up, you know, we got some some coverage, uh, some other news. Let's see what happens here. Billy Joel makes surprise appearance at Paul Reiser Comedy Show. This occurs on July tw- 20th. I guess Paul Reiser's uh, act involves him playing piano. So Billy Joel, so Billy came out and just says, uh, delighted the audience by singing a ballad and playing the piano alongside Reiser. Yeah, good for Paul Reiser. You know, staying with it. Yeah. So this is interesting. July 23rd, there's an article in Forbes. uh, And this is funny because this is back in 2015. This is certainly something that comes up more now. Just talking about how much demand there, there was in 2015. For Billy Joel tickets on the secondary market, each show either exceeds or is directly below the $200 ticket average. Um, but uh, tickets have a secondary market average of $375.25, the cheapest available ticket is $63. And now you can't even imagine getting a Billy Joel ticket for $63. Yeah, right. Well, we kind of pulled it off, but we were like barely in the same zip code of them at SoFi. So, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> God damn, man. That that place sucked. Our seats were at the Santa Monica Pier. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had to be there the one day it rains in like five years down there. Nobody knew what to do with I themselves. Know. The rain was hitting us. Dude, you remember how slick, dude, that stadium is five freaking levels. I, it's ridiculous. Oh my gosh. And then like, but the concrete, it's open air and the concrete is smooth. We were slick. How nobody like 
plummeted to their death is beyond me. Oh, I was nervous, man. That was yeah. scary. <laughs> you were nervous. I found out they had cheap tequila. <laughs> what do you think I was like at the end of the night? <laughs> I was nervous with that too for you. <laughs> yeah, so that's a yeah, that's an interesting uh, something that's been germinating for almost um, ten years now, I guess. We have an interview in Entertainment Weekly, so it talks about headlining Bonnaroo. It was different. I mean, I'm not really a festival act. I went to Woodstock. I didn't play there, but I went up on a motorcycle, which was a good move because the highway was just a parking lot. I wanted to see Hendrix and the Who, but after a day and a half with no real toilet facilities, what am I a bear? <laughs> I have to go in the woods. There's a lot of mud and people were smoking a lot of pot and taking a lot of acid. Bonnaroo was great. It was mostly new bands. There weren't a lot of classic rock acts. I suppose I'm classic rock, except Robert Plant, who performed. He was standing by the side of the stage while we were playing. I couldn't get to talk to him. It was weird. I got this feeling the kids aren't here to see me. The average age was 23 years old. Do they know me? Do I know them? Who's Billy Joel? Didn't he do like Piano Man? Isn't he the Uptown Girl guy? Talking about um, Madison Square Garden. Felt good. Virtue Sambora came out. I didn't think he was going to come. It was just loose. Talking about breaking Elton John's record for performances at the Garden. Bit of rehashing about how they uh, regard each other. A little bit about how he used to go off on reviewers. And I mm -hmm. suppose after a couple of years of tearing up reviews on stage, what's the saying? Don't get into a pissing war with people who order ink by the barrel. Is that like actually a saying? Like, is that, is that something anybody else is like really considered? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great old, you've seen this picture before. It's one, I guess he's, yeah. he's in his home studio and he's got like the blue plaid tucked in shirt and he's playing, uh, I guess he's got the mini Moog on one side, a piano on the other, and there's like another keyboard. Like very early 80s, Billy. How do you explain your younger fans' discovery of, mu of your music? I don't know. I haven't figured it out. I assume they're their own generation or they got their own music. There's a lot of stuff I don't know about, like electronic dance music, whether their parents played it and it's like dad rock, which I love. I love that expression. That's what I am. And there's a lot of stuff we've heard before in this one. So I just try to grab some interesting, uh, some interesting ones. We do get a uh, review of the Baltimore show. Billy Joel sticks to the hits at M&T Bank Stadium. After Billy Joel finished Say Goodbye to Hollywood, the fifth song of his two-hour-plus performance, the 66-year-old singer-songwriter smirked from his center stage piano chair. Then he asked a question, or are you well aware of the answer? You remember that old expletive, huh? All night, the banter remained loose like this with flashes of background details sprinkled in like a storyteller's episode. Yeah, the Nassau Coliseum Rolling Stone review. Billy Joel closes Nassau Coliseum with a nostalgic three-hour marathon. Surprise guests included Paul Simon and Kevin James. Well, Kevin James is really hanging around this year, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Show kicked off uh, with and Governor Andrew Cuomo. Ah, another recurring character. Hit the stage to introduce Joel. His words were quickly drowned out by a chorus of booze. Long bathroom lines. Some concessions ran out of all the food besides potato chips, but all was forgiven once Joel and his band took the stage. There's almost no such thing as an unfamiliar Billy Joel song in Long Island, where locals are basically issued copies of Turnstiles and Street Life Serenade at birth. Ah, all right. Daring. Paul Simon and Billy sing Homer duet on Homeward Bound. Paul Simon does Late in the Evening. Kevin James plucked out, plunked out the intro, Miami 2017. I don't know. Can he play piano well? I've never considered that. Ah, Joel dug deep into his catalog from 1978's Until the Night, brought out a large group of veterans for a tearful Goodnight Saigon. And rewarded the faithful with a rare Captain Jack. Ah, 1978, he also does I've Loved These Days. See, How Philadelphia Created Billy Joel from Philadelphia Magazine comes out August 9th, 2015. Uh, yeah, so this is a retelling of um, Sigma Sound. Yeah, no nothing revelatory here, but nice to see him in there. So on August 12th, Billy and Alexis welcome their daughter, Della Rose. But Billy, once again, isn't able to be home with mom and baby. Yeah. Because he's back in Philadelphia at Citizens Bank Park. And that's, I'm sure, what sparked the 
August 9th article we were just talking about. Then August 20th, we're back at the Garden. August 27th is in Chicago at Wrigley Field. And then as we get into September, we got uh, San Francisco, AT&T Park. During the summer and fall months, Billy played a lot of baseball stadiums uh, in those years. I, I was fortunate to see a couple of them. He still does, but he was really hitting it hard in 2015 and 16. Uh, we've got a article in Rolling Stone, uh, Reader's Poll, Top 10 Billy Joel Deep Cuts, September 9th. So we'll, we'll yeah, we're, we're not going to get, go into the descriptions, but uh, we'll just do roll, the Reader's Poll from Rolling Stone, 10 to 1, uh, Top 10 Deep Cuts. Number 10, we got Zanzibar. Number 9 is Stiletto. Number 8, And So It Goes. Number 7, Laura. Number 6, Miami 2017. Number five, All for Elena. Number four, Until the Night. Number three, Captain Jack. Number two, Vienna. Number one, Summer Highland Falls. I don't know if I would call those all deep cuts, but... Uh... Summer Highland is kind of becoming a little more scarce again these days, yeah. but uh, for a while that was a staple. Uh, Vienna, absolutely not a deep cut anymore. <laughs> Captain Jack broke him. Until the Night, yeah. Lena, sure. Laura. Miami, no. Laura, definitely a deep cut. And so it goes, was enough of a hit, I'd say no. Stiletto, I would go for, yeah. And Zanzibar played it every night since Carl joined the band. So yeah. <laughs> this is 2016, I got pulled out of deep cut status. 2006, rather. Uh, and then September 11th, Billy, among others, visit 9-11 first responders. Is Kevin James there too? <laughs> Joe Biden's in this. <laughs> There's Biden. Yeah, I recognize Joe Biden. Yeah. And Cuomo. Visit to the New York City Fire Department, Rescue Com- Company 1 Manhattan. Who had uh, suffered severe losses? The firehouse had suffered severe losses during the 2001 terrorist attacks, ne- losing nearly half the company. Wow. September 16th in Denver at the Pepsi Center. That venue has been renamed like four times since then, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, well, they all have, yeah. Then uh, September 22nd, we get the uh, 92nd Street Y New York conversation with Don Henley. That video has made the rounds. Uh, here yep. comes the Pope again, September 25th from Piano <laughs> Man to Pope. Man, they love doing that. From Piano Man to Fill in the Blank. Not just a pontiff. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> when asked, if only the good die young, <laughs> the Pope said, knock it off with that shit. <laughs> so who's this Virginia you're talking about? I see what you did there. Billy Joel, show designer at Madison Square Garden, Steve Cohen to light pa- uh, papal mass too. So they roped him in for that as well. Yeah. See? Steve like, lights yeah, the Pope. They yeah. let <laughs> us use the Billy Joel rig once, why not twice? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you did such a good job the last time. Uh, September 26th and October 21st at uh, MSG. Uh, October 30th, he sings the National Anthem at Game 3 of the World Series, uh, which was the only game the Mets won that year. Yeah, against and, Kansas City. Yep. And uh, let's round it out here. Uh, November uh, on the 6th, Houston, Texas, Toyota Center. November 19th, uh, Madison Square Garden. December 5th, Time Warner Cable Arena in Charlotte, North Carolina. December 17th, Madison Square Garden, and he does New Year's Eve at the BB&T Center in Sunrise, Florida. So set list, December 31st, 2015. I'm just going to read the standouts. We got This Is The Time in the number three slot. Interesting. Between Pressure mm. and The Longest Time. That's an interesting choice. Sing About a Hollywood. Sometimes the Fantasy, which is you know, in set list a lot back then and still is. Don't Ask Me Why was in. All Lang Sign. As he does on New Year's Eve. Right. You know, a lot of standard stuff. But this is the time. That's a nice treat. Say goodbye to Hollywood. Yeah. And so there you have it. There's 2015. Now, you know, on its face, nothing too revelatory here. But just put into perspective, um, you know, this is as the machine was steadily picking up steam again. You know, this was less than two years into the residency. We see all this accompanying press coverage going on. 
in different ways. We sort of see these things from time to time too. When like you, you know, you get the feeling that um, Billy's press corps or whomever else is uh, looking for different ways to to get his name out there. Like we conjecture that's what was going on in what eighty eight, eighty seven, eighty eight. When like he didn't tour, but he was doing. You know, he was on Sesame Street and things like that. Things Alexa yeah. would want to see, um, but it was just keeping him in the eye. Yeah. Uh, it was late Oliver 90s. Yeah. yeah, Oliver and Company, you know, late 90s. He did um, a lot of master classes, Q&As, things like that on what was sort of an off year or so for him. I'm going to say, thinking about these, it's sort of like reintroducing Billy to a new generation and at the same time, recontextualizing them, you know, so like the Philadelphia Magazine article, yeah. probably a lot of people that didn't know the Sigma Sounds thing, although we know it like the back of our hand. Getting him into Bonnaroo, uh, hip hop songs that sample his work. That's sort of a way of recontextualizing him for people yeah. that probably like all of a sudden starting to hear this name that maybe they didn't know too much about. They were like, yeah, well, you know, we, we've heard of this Billy Joel character, but he certainly hasn't done anything in a long time. You know, it's like if Huey Lewis somehow like scored a garden residency, millions of people would have to be reintroduced to who this fellow was. It's not right. that severe by any means, but there is a bit of that, you know, just putting him back in in perspective yeah because he got to understand he really did try to step away from it for quite a while and right. he did it in 2003 i want to say yeah. and then again you know in the um 2010 11 12 time frame it slowed down big time to almost nothing and then the 12 12 12 hurricane sandy benefit kind of reignited the billy joel thing and he realized he missed it and we kind of started gearing back up to busier years and i know billy doesn't care about the press stuff but around billy there is a team and a machine of people you know between record companies and publicists and touring personnel and so many different people who yeah. you know they work with billy and it's to keep things going it's important to keep visibility and so i know a lot of times people have rolled their eyes when they see Billy Joel, the hits or another Billy Joel compilation. You got to understand. Yeah, I get it, but they're not geared toward you. It's a compilation for somebody that's not going to buy the albums and they're, they're repackaging it for somebody that doesn't have them. And somebody wants a schmaltz, they'll get the schmaltz album. Somebody wants a this, they'll get to that. But there it is, 2015. Who was at that first, well, <laughs> second round of garden shows uh, besides Michael? Anybody run into Michael? He's a popular fella. Probably know him. Let us know. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Find us on the socials. Facebook, X, I said with big bug eyes. Ah, the hell with them. Twitter. It's Twitter, damn it. Still a pretty blue bird. What the hell else are we on? Facebook, Twitter. What's the other? Instagram. Big Twitter, Instagram, and we've got a great Discord server. Yeah. I was getting to that, but yeah. Uh, we got an awesome community of people who are discussing all the Billy Joel stuff along with us and other music and everyone's life happenings and... Uh, we also do these awesome, fun monthly watch parties where we all get together on the Discord server and we curate something to watch in any given month and we sit along and watch it and comment. It's a lot of fun. We've done live concerts, documentaries. We did uh, recently Billy Joel VH1 Storytellers. So there is a lot of fun to be had with that. Look at our uh, show notes for links to uh, Discord and all the socials and uh, we'd love to have you all involved. So uh, come on over. And uh, we'll see you next time. We'll see you soon, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.